This edition of the Northern Miner Podcast is sponsored by Mine Expo International, the world's largest mining trade show. See thousands of new products and services at the Las Vegas Convention Center from September 28th to 30th. Registration is now open, so visit MineExpo.com to register. You don't want to miss this opportunity. This is Global Mining News, available worldwide on the internet, wherever you find yourself. And I'd like to welcome you once again to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. Ladies and gentlemen, we have an announcement. We have an announcement to make. Trish Saywell, our former acting editor-in-chief, is now the current editor-in-chief of the Northern Miner, and we have an exclusive interview with Trish on this podcast, and we're going to talk about all things mining. It's going to be a editor's roundtable on... This pivotal moment in the markets and in the mining industry, and we're going to see what's going on, and we're going to duke it out a little bit, and so that is something to look forward to. And also, what do we have? We have the Canadian Mining Symposium is coming up. If you go to our Twitter page, uh, you can find a direct link to it. Just go to Twitter, and it's pinned right at the top, and you will get to the Canadian Mining Symposium, Mining Days in Canada. And you can also get there if you go to events on the northernminer.com website and hover over that and then click on 2020 Canadian Mining Symposium. We have spectacular speakers who are confirmed, and they are Sean Boyd, Agnico Eagle, CEO, Don Lindsay, President and CEO of Tech Resources, Randy Smallwood, the President and CEO of Wheaton Precious Metals, and Gord Stothard, President and CEO of I Am Gold. And we also have some hard-hitting analysts, Joe Foster, who is portfolio manager and gold strategist for Van Eck, and Jeffrey Christian, one of our favorites, managing partner at CPM Group. And the countdown clock says it's one month and two weeks away. So simply go to northernminer.com events and 2020 Canadian Mining Symposium and register. So that is coming up. It is all digital. And be sure to scroll down a little bit. Not only will you see the video of last year's Canadian Mining Symposium at Canada House in London, and you can see what a shishi event, a lot of people in suits and looking good. Uh, also, you'll see all our sponsors. And uh, we'd like to thank SRK, our thought leadership partner, and our gold sponsor, TMX, our silver sponsors, BMO and Pear Tree. And finally, our presenting sponsors, Can Alaska, Granite Creek Copper, Group 10 Metals, and metallic minerals. So thank you, everyone, that is coming up. Our engines are getting revved up. You know, just looking at the landscape here, it seems like a pivotal week in the markets, doesn't it? I mean, March, you had this historic 1929-like decline. And April, you had this spectacular rise. I mean, all the experts, the Fibonacci retracement is happening, and it, it seems like it has happened. So now, the big question, it's a pivotal week. Uh, will it continue to go up and defy many of the experts and a lot of the bears out there? Or will it go down? And do we have a lot of financial heartache in store ahead? So I think this week, 
A lot of people are paying close attention because it feels a little top heavy. The stocks that were going up, they're not going up as quickly anymore, right? And that's always a bit of a worrying sign for the bulls. Lots to look forward to. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. Find us on Twitter at northernminer. And let me just stop you right there. Thank you to our Twitter friends who are saying great things about this podcast. Thank you. Let me dig up your names. We got some really nice comments. Here we go. Golden Pursuit, at Pursuit Golden. If you're looking for a great podcast, the Northern Miner is one of our favorites. So thank you, Golden Pursuit. And thank you to everyone else. I won't go through them all. But you know what? Next time I'm going to try. If we keep getting more, I'm, maybe I'll just say your names out there as uh, thank you back. As well, you can find us on Facebook and you can find us on LinkedIn and you can find us on YouTube where we also post these podcasts. And finally, you can also find us wherever podcasts are available. And with that, on to the news. And turning to the website, we have a new story from Steve Stakiu who is our Vancouver correspondent, and he has a story on Meg Silver receiving $60 million from Eric Sprott. Shares of Meg Silver gained as much as 31% to a several-month high of $17.87 on the TSX, following news of the precious metals sector financier Eric Sprott investing $60 million into the soon-to-be silver producer. Interesting moment, hey, because... As we've said on previous ep episodes, this idea that silver follows gold, this really is kind of a, a gold bug rule because we've seen predictions from banks that say, oh no, silver's not going to play catch up because it's too industrial based. But I think you see Sprott's gold bug bias uh, coming out here. Who knows? That's just a theory because now he's jumping on silver before it makes a move would be the underlying logic here. The $60 million equity placement saw Sprott buy Four and a half million shares of Meg Silver at $13.25 a piece to top up the company's treasury to $72 million. Sprott's investment plan gives him a direct 5% interest in the company. And according to President and CEO George Paspalas, this is Sprott's largest single investment in the silver space. Meg Silver owns a 44% share in the Wanachipio Silver Mine Project which is advancing towards production this year in the Fresnillo district of Mexico's Zacataca state. Now, Fresnillo, it says here, is the world's largest silver producer. And of course, it owns 56% of the high-grade project. And initial mine production is anticipated in mid-2020, with the ore being processed at Fresnillo's nearby mill facilities until the new 4,000-ton-per-day processing plant at Juanachipio is completed and commissioned in mid-2021. Based on Meg Silver's 2017 preliminary economic assessment, the mine is anticipated to deliver annual payable production on average of 9.6 million ounces of silver, 39,500 ounces of gold, 68 million pounds of zinc, 43 million pounds of lead over a modeled 19-year mine life. It's quite a bit of silver each year. 10 million ounces of silver. The early state study forecasts all-in sustaining costs of $5.02 per ounce silver and PEG's initial capital costs of $360 million with payback in less than two years 
after plant startup. And finally, Wanachipio is located in the Fresnillo Silver Trend, where historic silver production has exceeded 6.2 billion ounces, or about 10% of the world's historic production of the metal. And speaking of silver miners, we have another story, and this is based on a report from Global Data. Silver miners hit hard by lockdowns. And it says here, since mid-March, the response of governments worldwide to COVID-19 pandemic has led to disrupted mining activities across the globe. 32 countries have passed partial or complete lockdown orders, leading to the temporary suspension of activities at over 1,600 mines as of April 3rd. Though that number, the 1,600 mines shutting down as of April 3rd, has since dropped to 729. As restrictions begin to ease in certain areas, analysts at Global Data report. So that's quite a drop, actually. So 1,600 mines were offline, but now only 729. So mines are coming back online. However, the exempted mines are nevertheless still operating with reduced numbers of workers to minimize the potential spread of the virus, which is causing a slow return for an industry that has already seen production hit by restrictions. And it says here that silver production has been the biggest victim, according to global data, with nearly 66% of the world's annual output still on hold. And major silver miners, First Majestic Silver, Hosschild, Hecla Mining, and Endeavor Silver have all withdrawn their production guidance for 2020 in the wake of the virus outbreak. I think that's true across the whole financial world. Uh, Guidance, I think even Apple didn't release their guidance. So... Maybe nothing to write home about there, but significant. And other metals that are experiencing significant production disruptions include, at at the top, uranium, 32% production disruption. Zinc, 23.8% disruption. Platinum, 20%. Nickel, 15%. Diamond, 15%. And copper, 13%. So uranium. And uh, if you look up uranium prices online, they're actually a little tricky to get. But you'll see it's starting to perk up. So that's a market that, you know, a lot of northern miner readers have been paying attention to for near a decade and patiently waiting since Fukushima, really, for that market to pick back up. And uh, it looks like it may be on its way, but let's see. So there is more online on that article. So silver has been hit particularly hard, according to global data. So that is significant. And turning to copper, there are also some significant copper mine shutdowns. Peruvian copper mine Antamina, which is owned by BHP and Glencore, has reported 210 positive cases of coronavirus. The date to restart their operation is still uncertain. Antamina is one of the largest copper zinc mines in the world, producing 101 million tons of copper in 2019, the announcement came on April 27th after six workers at Fortuna Silver Mines, Kailoma operation in southern Peru, also tested positive for COVID-19. And Peruvian President Martin Vizcara has extended the country's lockdown and travel restrictions to May 10th, while the effects of a copper supply shock remain to be seen. I suppose if if the demand shock is there, maybe the supply shock won't be as bad. That being said, China, the world's top metal consumer, 
boosted copper imports year-on-year in March, but still faces challenges as miners have reduced shipments or suspended operations. Isn't that interesting? I mean, they call it Dr. Copper, and apparently China has higher imports year-on-year for copper in March. Now, those could be previous orders that are simply being filled, and it's the Chinese government is probably more than happy to still take the copper rather than turn it back. So that may not be as significant as it might sound, as it sounds like there's a quite a slow restart in China. But let's see. So this is also from Global Data. So they also tackled the copper market here. Data analytics firm Global Data forecasts copper output growth of 1.9% this year compared to the original forecast growth rate of 3.4%. And so they're still expecting the copper market output to grow. And on April 27th, copper prices rose to the highest in nearly six weeks. Isn't that interesting? And also, there's Freeport McMoran has their El Abra copper mine in Chile is also scaling back. Uh, they're scaling back copper processing by 40% as global prices plunge amid the coronavirus pandemic. The mine, located in the province of El Loa in northern Chile, is one of two copper mines operated by Freeport in South America. The world's largest publicly traded copper producer said on April 24th that it would cut its 2020 costs by 18% or $1.3 billion as prices for copper plunge. And also copper giant Codelco has also been hit by delays in upgrades and expansion projects caused by measures to stop the coronavirus. And Australia-based MMG saw copper production decline 20% in the first three months of the year compared to the same period in 2019 after declaring force majeure at its Las Bombas mine in Peru amid coronavirus-related restrictions. And we have a couple more. Anglo-American, their Los Bronques copper mine in Chile near Santiago saw output tumble 25% to 68,700 tons, battered primarily by a worsening drought in the region. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, Chile, I think they really struggle with the water over there. And Grupo Mexico, the third largest copper producer in the world through its subsidiary Asarco, registered a net loss of $369 million during the first quarter of 2020 in a sharp reversal from the same period a year ago. The largest mining company in Mexico recently reduced its mining operations to comply with governmental orders to suspend non-essential activities. And finally, Valet has extended the care and maintenance period at its Boise's Bay Mine in Labrador, Canada for up to three months. So another report from Global Data Sounds like copper production is also taking a pretty big hit. And finally, I just wanted to turn to this uranium story. The U.S. has outlined a strategy to support the domestic nuclear energy sector. And this is by Dan Sekulik, who files reports with us every so often. And he's following this nuclear, the U.S. uranium story They've been talking about uh, securing a domestic supply of uranium for a year or two at least now. The Trump administration has been quite interested in that. And it sounds like the U.S. imports most of its uranium, and I think they want to change that. And meanwhile, the uranium companies in the U.S., like Energy Fuels or Uranium Energy, you know, their stock prices are 
really bouncing off the bottom. So it sounds like they're trying to put a little intervention into the market to try and perhaps build these companies up so that the U.S. can have a domestic uranium supply. And we have a quote from the report Uh, The decline of the U.S. industrial base in the front end of the nuclear fuel cycle over the past few decades has threatened our national interest and national security. This is from Dan Bruyette, the U.S. Secretary of Energy. The Trump administration is committed to regaining our competitive global position as the world leader in nuclear energy. In February, as part of the president's proposed federal budget for fiscal 2021, His administration requested $150 million annually over the next decade to stockpile U.S. mined uranium in a new national reserve. And finally, the strategy, it basically relies on a threefold approach, which is designed to strengthen the entire U.S. nuclear enterprise. And it says here it begins with the government taking a series of actions to revive and strengthen the uranium mining industry, while also ending reliance on foreign enrichment capabilities. For miners, the most important aspect of the phase is the commitment by the government to directly purchase uranium from American producers in order to create a strategic reserve of the metal. And yeah, and then we have some quotes in here. It's a great article. It's pretty long, but it's thorough and comprehensive. Uh, We have a quote from Energy Fuels president and CEO, Mark Chalmers, and what he says is pretty revealing. Quote, America is truly addicted to uranium. Approximately one third of the world's uranium is consumed by the United States. And so Mark Chalmers is really making a push for this program, the Strategic Reserve. And we also have a quote from Jeff Klenda who is chairman and CEO of Ur Energy, which is another American uranium miner. And what he says is, quote, if you're going to resurrect the fuel cycle here in the United States, it really must, by definition, begin from the ground up, which means you got to address the miner first, Clenda said. Everything else is built on us. Well, that sounds like the truth, doesn't it? So they're getting optimistic. The whole uranium market is getting kind of optimistic. And yeah, those prices are starting to perk up a little bit. So let's see what happens there. It's been a long wait for those uranium bulls out there. So let's see what happens. There have been a lot of false dawns. So with that, let's turn to metal prices. We'd like to thank once again our friends at Infomine.com who provide us with these prices each and every week. And if you ever want to find them, just put Infomine and metal prices into Google and it will be the first result. And on May 5th, gold is at $1,700.28 per ounce. That is $9 lower than last week's quote. Silver is also lower at $14.84. That is $0.26 lower than last week's quote. Platinum is at $768.12. That is $3.5 higher than last week's quote. And palladium is down. It's at $1,865.45. That is $72 lower 
than last week's quote. Now, palladium, it peaked as far as our prices are concerned. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten weeks ago at the $2,660. So it's significantly lower now. Is the bull market in palladium done? Time will tell. But uh, yeah, it doesn't look like we're going to be revisiting 2660 anytime soon. Continuing on, and on May 1st, we have our industrial metals. Copper is at $2.30 per pound. That is two cents lower than last week's quote. Aluminum is also down two cents at 65 cents per pound. Lead is a penny lower at 72 cents per pound. Nickel is 10 cents lower at $5.38 per pound. Tin is a penny lower at $6.88 per pound. Cobalt is unchanged at $13.38. And zinc is a penny higher at 86 cents per pound. You see a bit of a pause on the reflation trade. And so, again, a pivotal week on the markets. So I think we really have to look closely to get an idea of where this market is going. A lot of uncertainty out there. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Trish Saywell, our new official editor-in-chief. Trish was formerly the acting editor-in-chief, and now she is official. So big congratulations to her. And we're sort of wrapping up our little Northern Miner family series uh, with Trish. I think eventually, though, Sales guys, don't feel left out. I think eventually we'll put you on, uh, maybe not for twenty or thirty minutes, <laughs> maybe not for twenty or thirty minutes, but we'll put you on. All right, so it's coming. Um, but I think probably coming up, we're gonna do some earnings calls and whatnot. But here today, Trish Saywell, uh, our new editor in chief, and she's got a great perspective. You're gonna see what a veteran she is. And let me just say right now, she is an excellent collaborator. To me, that's one of the highest forms of praise you can give. Someone is an excellent collaborator because for me, it is such a precious thing. So I hope you enjoy the interview, get to know Trish a little bit, and we'll see you on the other side. Okay, so joining me now is Trish Saywell, who is now officially editor-in-chief of the Northern Miner. She has been acting editor-in-chief for quite a few months now, so we're very happy for her. And uh, Trish, welcome to the podcast. Congratulations. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Thank you. So tell me, Trish, I started at the Northern Miner in October of 2012, and uh, you were already working there. Tell me, when did you start at the Northern Miner? It was August 2007. And what was it like in 2007? Because what I heard was it was kind of boom times in, in terms like there was even, I remember there's some magazine that the Northern Miner put out and it was just literally 100 pages of ads. Do you remember what I'm talking? Do you know what I'm talking about? I do. It was it was it was a great great time. I mean, I remember when I started, uranium was at seventy five bucks a pound, and now it's you know what twenty two bucks or something. Yeah, it's it's just starting to perk up. It's funny. I've been watching the uranium really closely. It's finally starting to make some moves. But yeah, I remember Alicia showing me this magazine uh, that I think Brian had worked on, where it was just like literally a hundred pages of ads. 
<laughs> what a great, yeah. It's like I've Those never seen the time. Those, Those were the days. Were the days, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And and I remember going on site visits all the time. I mean, site visits have really dried up. Uh, you know, we were traveling all over the world basically every other month writing good profile pieces. So a lot of that's dried up as well. Isn't that interesting? I guess that's just the cost. It's like part of their marketing, I guess, is invite people out to cover their minds. So I guess that's just a cost. You know, they say marketing's the first thing to go. So yeah. And where were you before? Like you were somewhere in Asia, weren't you? That's right, Adrian. I, I did a master's in journalism and then I ended up uh, in Asia. I, I lived there as a kid uh, in 1967 in Hong Kong for a year. And then in Beijing during the Cultural Revolution in 1973, because my father was an academic and he was a sinologist, so he spent a year in Hong Kong doing his PhD in 67, and then in 73, uh, he worked for the Canadian government for a year at the embassy, and so we moved there as a family. Uh, I guess I would have been in grade six at the time. And then later, I just was interested in Asia, so I studied Mandarin at university, and I went to Taiwan and studied it for a year, for example, after my second year of university. And and anyway, when I ended up back starting off in, in, in the job market, I went back to Asia. So I worked for a local newspaper there called the Hong Kong Standard for a couple of years. Then when I went back in 92, I started working for the Far Eastern Economic Review out of Hong Kong, and I covered China trade and, and the opening up of China, basically. And then I was posted to Shanghai for a couple of years as their bureau chief. So I, it was a really interesting time because the state-owned enterprises were all being, a lot of them were being privatized and, and China was opening up to the world. So that was a fascinating time to be there. Uh, and then I spent about four years in Singapore as the magazine's uh, Singapore bureau chief. Anyway, I ended up back in Toronto and joined the Northern Miner. So uh, here we are. Amazing. And do you actually speak Mandarin or do you know how to speak? How far did that go? <laughs> well, it's sort of a, I think that's a lifelong uh, <laughs> yes. endeavor. It's like, it's like German. <laughs> yeah. How is your German? You've been there for uh, two years now. Uh, my German is okay. Like, uh, you know, if I need to talk to a UPS guy, we'll get to the end of the conversation and we'll get there. We'll get right. there. But, but it's, uh, as, as, as the UPS guy said this morning on the phone, das ist schwierig. This is very difficult. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I should be better. I should be better, but I can, I can do it. If he doesn't speak any English or she, I can do it, you know. Didn't you study German in high school? I did for four years. That's why I say, Trish, it's a lifelong pursuit. <laughs> and I, I've, you know, I've been here for three and a half years and I've taken a couple of classes. I mean, that's really the key to German is you have to go to uh, classes for basically six months straight, four hours a day, and then you will be a German speaker. So I've been spreading that out. So probably in year 10, I'll maybe be an official German speaker. I take I, a class every like three months. I should do it all at once, but well, it's just I'm too jealous. much. No. And I'm sure you're being modest too. I mean, Chinese is, you know, not only do you have to speak it, but then you have to learn the script, which I, which I really never did. I would say my Mandarin is pretty rough right now, but I mean, I would love to just spend a year immersed in it once again, and then it would come back. Right. So you could actually speak them. Yeah, so, sort of. I don't know. I mean, I, I can like make myself bit. understood. My being is better than my, my comprehension at this point, but it's been a few years since I've, I've been there. So I'd love to go to Middlebury, for example, and spend a whole summer. They have an amazing language school at Middlebury College in the States. Just love to go there. And you can't speak English at all during the time you're there. You just have to speak. Oh, anyway, that, fabulous. That, that's the key. 
you have yep. to get it's like a workout for your mind you just have to go to the gym of language class and exactly. uh, speak nothing but german or mandarin good okay well that's that's all fascinating so yeah i guess that gives you extra perspective on the whole uh, china story just in general so bringing us up to the present uh how do you see the mining industry right now like i guess my take on it would be it seems to be kind of healthy is how I'd put it. Gold seems to have recovered from 1050 in like 2015, 2016. And here it's just kind of crept up all the way up to 1700. And the other commodities seem to be kind of low, but healthy enough. I don't know. It looks like it's in good shape. Even in, in even in context of the coronavirus, it seems like, well, people still will need nickel. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I think it depends on the metals you're talking about. I mean, this pandemic is unprecedented, obviously. So, I mean, I think where you, we're seeing the most optimism is gold. I mean, so just to put it in context, the highest all-time gold price was in August 2011. And that was $1,917.90 an ounce. So we're not there now, but Bank of America recently said gold's going to hit a peak of $3,000 an ounce within 18 months. But for averages, it's saying the gold price is going to average about $1,695 in 2020, $2,012 an ounce in 2021, and $1,808 an ounce in 2022. And we're seeing a lot of different forecasts. I don't know if you, do you want me to talk about those. Sure. Why don't you? Yeah, and we're we're going to feature some of them in uh, this week's paper. But yeah, take us through them. Like, what what are you hearing? Okay. Well, so CIBC just increased its gold price forecast for this year to seventeen twenty five and eighteen hundred in twenty twenty one. Scotia Bank says the mean gold price this year is going to be sixteen fifty with an annual average of seventeen hundred dollars an ounce in twenty one and. Uh, 2022. Just to interject there, it seems pretty tame, doesn't it? Like, it sounds like they're saying nothing's going to happen with the gold price. I mean, 3,000 an ounce. Bank of America, yeah. Bank of America is really, and that's a huge bank that's saying it's not uh, McEwen Mining (laughs) saying that it's going up to 3,000. But the CIBC, I'm talking about CIBC's forecast, it seems kind of tame, doesn't it? I mean, it's like, it's going to be 1,600, so it's going to go down. (laughs) Like, You know, that's what Bloomberg's saying. Bloomberg is saying, you know, if the gold price hit a peak of uh, 1,900 in uh, 2011 after the financial crisis, this is a huge pandemic that's going to really hit gold. It should should have greater impact than it did in the financial crisis, in other words. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I think those forecasts probably are a bit on the low side. So, sorry, continues. Jeffrey Christian of CPM Group in New York says he thinks prices will spike up to $1,800 an ounce or maybe higher this year. Uh, but the annual average for this year is going to be about $1,698, he says. Um, although longer term, he expects prices to rise sharply, maybe averaging around $2,300 an ounce in nominal terms but not until 2024. Was that pre-coronavirus or was that No, uh, during, I just or... talked to him uh, on Friday. Yeah, so maybe, I mean, these are the experts. What do I know? Yeah, but continue. He says he, the price could hit as high as $1,800 an ounce at some point yeah. this year, yeah. but its annual average for the year I see. is, is $1,698. Wow. Okay, so, so he's very careful. similar to CIBC. Well, you have to be really careful when you're talking about gold prices. Like these, you know, they can hit a, hit a peak of whatever it is, but these are annual averages, right? So there's right. That's okay. what I mean when Bank of America says it's hitting 3,000 within 18 months. Well, they're actually saying it's going to average 1695 this year mm-hmm. and 2012 
dollars an ounce in 2021 and 1808 in 2022, $1,808. Yes. So this is great, actually, because, yeah, in a sense, you're basically saying don't get wrapped up in the headline pokebelly. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Like uh, hold your horses there. It's uh, the average. Yeah, I get it now. Okay. So that's interesting. I mean, just Um, in terms of metal prices, I mean, when you think about it, you know, this pandemic, the massive amount of fiscal stimulus that's going on uh, and will continue to go on, you know, worldwide, we're not just talking about the U.S., is going to have a a tremendous impact on what happens. I mean, when you think about the, the latest economic news, it's so grim. I mean, the U.S., the GDP in the first quarter contracted by 4.8%. It's the first decline since 2014 and the worst quarterly contraction since 2008 recession. So, and that's only a preview of what's to come, right? I mean, these right. quarterly numbers don't even take account uh, what happened last month in April, which was really bad. So some people think that the second quarter contraction in the States is going to be 30 to 40%. And look at the labor numbers. The U.S. Labor Department just released news that the six-week total of unemployment was 30 million. Just headlines are like Boeing last week. They cut 16,000 jobs and they said they don't expect air travel to recover for at least three years. Look at the oil patch. I mean, Exxon last week, first quarterly loss in three decades. BP, a $4.3 billion loss in the first quarter. And it said its debt climbed to its highest level since 2015. Anyway, uh, and and when you look at mining, I mean, we're getting hit too. Freeport last week announced a first quarter loss of 491 million, and it it said that it's going to cut capex this year by 30 percent and exploration by about 20 percent. And their mm. CEO and their CFO are taking volunt- you know, taking pay cuts. And Turquoise Hill last week, I think it was right, right, pay yep. cuts as well. So. And who knows what's going to happen with the U.S.-China trade relationship? I mean, Trump is just blaming China for the pandemic, and yeah, it seems like like he likes to find someone to basically blame. scapegoat or to you know to shift the blame. Yeah, and so it, yeah, scarily, it looks like he's chosen China for that, and that basically he's going to tr- run against China for the election, and it's yeah, that's getting pretty intense. You saw the I mean, market on Friday. I mean, that was. It sort of took a bit of a hit, and that was attributed. I mean, no one ever knows the real reasons why these things go down, but it was attributed to Trump's hostility against China. I mean, and the whole trade war before the pandemic was really hitting mining too, right? So, so right. after this, and whenever that after is going to be, uh, who knows what the relationship is going to look like between China and the U.S. It certainly doesn't look very good right now. I mean, I read a story in the New York Times over the weekend. You know, people are starting to consider lawsuits against China in the States. I saw that. Yeah, I mean, I think a couple of state governors were... Yeah, so it's but and then yeah, and so, talking about messes, yeah. if we could go to Papua New Guinea, I mean, yeah, you know, let's talk about that. Wasn't bad enough, you know. Now Papua New Guinea is threatening to. Well, it said it won't renew Barrick's mining lease uh, for another twenty years. But the good news uh, out on Friday is that a court in Papua New Guinea has ordered the two parties to get back to the bargaining table and report back to them on May 8th. So who knows, maybe we'll have some movement there. Yeah, I found that story very subtle. And I I feel like it's really hard to get down to what is going on as you look at the different reports. I mean, I mean, and Zijin Mining is also in that joint venture with Barrick. I think they have something like 47 and a half or 45% each or whatever it is. 
Yeah. And what turned my head a little bit on uh, the story, because at first it looks like Tiny Nation is basically desperate for money and let's grab this. What's, and I was reading up on it. It sounds like it's one of the top 10 gold mines in the world. Like this is a, as uh, Bristow calls it, it's a tier one asset, mm-hmm. which means like one of these massive gold mines. And then the prime minister comes out and it's kind of an ESG type defense. It sounds like the locals are pretty mad. There were some bad stories in the past. Like I, who knows what the truth of all of this is, but it's not a black or white issue. And what I found interesting just from a purely media analysis or narrative analysis perspective is the prime minister is kind of threatening to take over the mine, basically over ESG grounds. And I thought, you know, with Barrick, it's put so much work into their ESG. And then here, like the prime minister of PNG, and there they are in league with uh, Zijin Mining. So anyway, I don't know. I don't know if you have any more thoughts on that, but uh, it's that one's there's a lot to look at in that story. Yeah, there sure is. It would be really interesting to see what happens on the 8th of May when they have to report back. If I had to bet today, I'd say that the, the, the lease will be renewed. I, I think this is just a bit of posturing. Uh, but who knows, you know? Yeah. And then I saw like on some like vague, it looked like some front news website that the Chinese government was very an- annoyed with PNG and that this threatens their relationship. So, yeah, I think you might be right. Like, and maybe it's posturing for the locals because it sounds like the locals are, you know, like it kind of keeps popping up in these stories that the locals are unhappy. And, you know, when you're looking at these macro big picture stuff, that can seem like a small detail. But when you're on the ground, the locals matter. You know what I mean? Like, so the locals can make your life hell and the locals can make the prime minister's life difficult. So, you know, like, so there's all sorts of shades of gray in this story. So like you say, so there's, so the court has ruled, uh, the national court has ruled that, uh, they uh, that the government needs to basically it's i'm not sure if they said talk to barrack or talk to the jv partners but basically they need to look at a solution basically is what i gathered yeah yeah that's what reuters is saying so so yeah so so there's that okay and yeah i guess the other big news story last week was uh you know silver corp uh which is a chinese uh, mining company it's got silver mines in china they're trying to buy guyana gold fields um so our Colleague Cecilia at uh, mining.com wrote that story as well, talking about that. Um, yeah, we have that on page two. Yeah. yeah. So, the, yeah it's a, so we're sort of going a little bit through this week's newspaper, a, a touch here, because the Barrick story is our big page one, and you'll see that. You'll see our very subtle headline that we put on that. And uh, yeah, and then so Silver Corp makes a move. And, and Silver Corp's sort of a weird company. I remember way back when I used to subscribe to these financial newsletters, and Silver Corp was in there. and. It had all sorts of weird stuff going on, uh, and it looks sounds like the CEO is the same guy. And Guiana Goldfields, I don't know too much about, but yeah. Anyways, so interesting moves over there. Uh, do, you, do you know anything else about it, or is that just uh... Uh, not not too much? I mean, Guyana has been under investor pressure due to poor performance uh, for a while right. now. Like uh, in March of last year, they they said that the amount of gold in their proven and probable reserves had declined. By almost 1.7 million ounces. Compared it's always to a little suspect when that happens. <laughs> hey, it's like yeah. And I don't know if you read uh, Mark Turner. Uh, he's got a blog called IKN. Uh, he's quite critical often and uh, sometimes rightly so. He says that 
he's not even sure that Silvercorp actually did any due diligence. He he doesn't think they even went to the mine. Now, I don't know if that's true, but, you know, you oh, got to wonder, right? What's going on there? Yeah. yeah. But anyway, it's an M&A story and we cover M&A and... Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I find what I like about our uh, neck of the woods in terms of the narratives and stories is uh, it's kind of got this governmental side to it. Like it's a lot of the it's really easy for the public to kind of ignore junior mining but and just mining in general. But there's something kind of fundamental about it. And it's very governmental in its kind of scope. And it's just like it it's really got its own beat, as I would say, you know. Yeah. So anyways, is there, and is, are there any other stories that are catching your eye uh, these days or any themes? Well, I like Mark Selby a lot. And he's just uh, he's moved on to another nickel project. He's the chairman and CEO of Canada Nickel Company. And they've got a, a project called Crawford which is a large tonnage nickel cobalt sulfide discovery, about 20 kilometers from Glencore's Kid Creek metal mine in Timmins. And it looks pretty good. So I'll be interested to watch. He, of course, has a really long history in nickel. And uh, I think he's on to another really good project here. So I'm going to be watching that one closely as well. Now, he used to be the CEO of Royal Nickel. Is that right? And do you know what happened there, or why did he move on? Is, or is that... No, I, I, I haven't had a chance to really talk to him about that, uh, and I'm not sure he would anyway. Um, yeah, you never know with that stuff. I mean, sometimes it's just personalities clashing, or maybe it's just another opportunity comes up. Yeah, definitely. Um, Plus, very... the, other, the other big news story <laughs> is, yeah, tell us. Uh, is uh, out of North Korea. So, so the dictator is actually alive. You know, there was speculation for yeah, weeks now yeah. that Kim Jong-un had moved on. Uh, but apparently it's not, store. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> it's yeah. not dead. He uh, he surfaced in a photograph. Uh, their state media posted a picture of him on Saturday uh, from a Friday opening of a fertilizer plant. So he was cutting a ribbon there. So uh, he hasn't died of COVID or a, a botched surgery. He's alive and well in North Korea. Yeah. Are there any mines in North Korea, Trish? <laughs> oh, probably. You know? Probably. Yeah. All mines. Uh, I don't really yeah. know. But yeah. Uh, <laughs> Good. Okay. Well, thank you, Trish. Uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And let's talk more often on the podcast and sort of just get you to check in every so often. It's really nice. And congratulations again for uh, you're now the official, no longer the acting, but the official editor in chief of the Northern Miner, taking your place amongst a, a great line of editors in chief. So that's great. And it's a, over a hundred year old paper. It's a famous trade newspaper. So congratulations again on that. Thank you. I mean, uh, with John Cumming leaving, that was a really big loss. He'd been editor in chief for many, many years. I think he'd spent about 23 years in total at the Northern Miner. So when that he left about for, right. for yeah, Agnico, so that was a big loss for us. So I've got big shoes to fill. But filling them you are. And uh, yeah, no, the the website's never been more active since I've been there, and the paper is sensational. So do check it out, everyone. The Northern Miner print edition, it's going to come out. It's not yesterday, but it's coming Monday. Come check that out. And uh, okay, Trish, thanks again, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks a lot, Adrian. And that wraps up our family edition of the Northern Miner podcast. We hope you enjoyed the last few shows. We're going to change the pace next show. I think we're gonna, I'm curious about these earnings calls. We listened to a few of them last time, and I found them just fascinating. So let's check in again, I'm thinking. 
So uh, if you like the podcast, feel free to share it with your friends. Leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. We will be eternally grateful. And I'm especially thankful for those people on Twitter and everywhere on social media that say nice things about this podcast. I will start collecting your names and sharing them with the world. Until next week, take care.